0: Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. me. Friday broadcast, that means you've got questions, we've got answers. 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. And I'm going to go to the phones momentarily. Something funny happened yesterday. Uh, my assistant Dylan was over. We were going to be moving some things from the rental we're now to house we're moving into, um, my wife Nancy and I, and Dylan was helping out and opened the garage door, and just, just as I was opening the door, it really started raining. I mean, heavy rain. I mean, torrents of pouring rain. So it just so happened I'd opened that garage door as Dylan was coming in, and seconds later, there was an Indian family walking down the street, and they came running over into the garage. There, there are a lot of Indian families in our neighborhood and we often see them walking. Well, they were walking when suddenly rain came pouring down. They said, oh, thank you, thank you. They thought that I saw them walking and opened the <laughs> open the garage door for them. And then there were, I don't know, three, four people in there uh, just in between where the vehicle was and where the garage door was. But, of course, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't pack anything or move anything because they were standing in our area. But they were so appreciative and so uh, St. Mike lives on. Yeah, we didn't do anything. Just was opening the garage door, like my friend did, and suddenly we became the saviors for the moment in the rainstorm. 866-34-TRUTH. You know I don't comment a lot on economic issues, but I just felt prompted to do this. I wrote an article last night getting a lot of attention, Three Reasons Why So Many Millennials Love Socialism. So you can read that on stream.org, join in the comments there, or over at our website, Brown. Dot org. Okay, we are going to go straight to the phones. My reminder, as always, the earlier you call in, the better chance we have of getting to your call. Uh, we start in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dwayne, welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Hi, Dr. Brown, how are you?
0: Doing very well, thank you.
2: Well, my question is from um, Deuteronomy 5 Just to kind of give you a little bit of background. Um, I was raised in a very strict, um, more Wesleyan, Pentecostal holiness group. Mm-hmm. And so we were taught, uh, for example, that a woman is not to wear pants and and that. And so, you know, later on, I've, I've kind of tried to, to study that out to see, um, you know, is that really the case? Does the Bible really talk about that? Of course, I know it doesn't mention the word pants in Deuteronomy 22.5. So in my mind, I tried to wrap it around, you know, is that talking about um, things that are gender-specific? For example, there's some things that a woman may wear that, that I, as a man, would not wear because it's gender-specific.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: trying to rationalize that. But, you know, I've read Jewish commentaries about it just to try to get a Jewish perspective on what yeah. does that mean. And I've never been able to find anything that really agrees with um, that application today. I'd like to get your take on what you think about that.
0: Yeah, so Deuteronomy twenty-two 5, I'll read it in a couple of different translations. Uh, the CSB, a woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Or if we read it from the Jewish Publication Society version, so a contemporary Jewish translation, a woman must not put on man's apparel, nor shall a man wear woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Now, the first question is, is this just something for the Sinai Covenant? And if so, is this something that Christians should be thinking about today? It's just one verse. There are other verses in Deuteronomy that Christians don't follow today and would say that was part of the Sinai Covenant. The reason why I would say this goes beyond Sinai Covenant is because it says whoever does this is toavat Adonai, which is detestable to the Lord. That same word toevah is the word used, for example, about homosexual practice in Leviticus 18.22. So that gets my attention. Uh, I studied one time every, every time that that phrase occurs, toavat Adonai, and, and found that in each and every instance, and I'm just looking at the Hebrew in front of me now, in each and every instance, it referred to something that was universally wrong. So that gets my attention and that makes me say, okay, that, that is something that would apply till today. The question is, what exactly does that mean? A lot of things obviously are purely cultural. And it, it, it's funny, I, m- I mentioned uh, Indian families in, in my neighborhood, little bit uh, before, just a couple minutes ago. But there's a funny story. A well-known, highly respected pastor in Louisiana told me that when he first started preaching as a young man, he went over to India. And the first village that he preached in, all the women were, they wore like pantsuits, and the men wore like gowns. So he got up and was preaching this furious message based on Deuteronomy 22.5, rebuking them, because the women were wearing pants and the men were wearing gowns. What he didn't realize was that he was the one wearing women's clothing. (laughs) In other words, (laughs) in their eyes, because he was wearing pants, he was wearing women's clothing. So obviously you have to be very careful culturally in terms of application. And transgender activists, transgenders who uh, identify as Christians absolutely disagree with what I'm about to say. But I do believe that this verse is telling us that there should not be intentional confusing of gender distinctions. So in our culture today, women wear pants and men don't wear dresses, women can wear dresses. There, it can go in different directions, right? Certain things, you don't cross that line. Other things, it's blurred. So to me, it's clearly saying that a male should not intentionally wear female clothing or a female intentionally wear male clothing. And, therefore, I would say this is a direct prohibition against cross-dressing. We're not going to get into gender identity discussion and debate right here, but it is saying gender distinctions matter. It is not saying that this only took place in pagan temples and in pagan worship. It seems to be something universal, and just as God made us male and female, things that we do to blur gender distinctions are in error. Now, there are plenty of things that we have in common. There are plenty of things that men can wear, women can wear, men can do, women can do that we have in common. There are other things that are gender distinctive and recognized as such in a culture, and for a man intentionally to wear women's clothing or a woman intentionally to wear men's clothing, that would be something that is is wrong in God's sight.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate
0: that. You, you are very welcome. Thanks for the question. 866-348-7884. Uh, let's go to Wichita, Kansas. Nathan, welcome to the Line of Fire.
4: Hey, how's it going, Dr. Michael Brown?
0: Very well, thank you.
4: Good. Yeah, um, I attend a church. Uh, I just serve as a worship leader, uh, not like on staff or pastor or anything. But um, we uh, have been having a lot more prayer meetings here lately, and uh, there's some uh, people that are not. Jews, but they're Gentile believers, and they observe heavily a lot of the Jewish months, and they keep bringing up like, "Well, this is the month of Adar, or you know, something like that." And each month, it seems like whatever the, the whatever reason they have that month uh, celebration, it's somehow prophetic for each month for our church,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and they keep talking about that, and each year, it's like the year of Jubilee, the year of Breakthrough, or something like that, and I'm, I've been struggling with it, and kind of, how can I, uh, is, is it right for them to think that way? Am I missing out on something here? Because um, I'm thinking, like, okay, we can celebrate that, that's cool, like, I like it, I love to learn more about Jesus, but, you know, everything summed up in Christ, the substance is Christ, you know, is God doing that much different stuff each month with us? Like, <laughs> does that make sense? Like,
0: Yeah, so, so let, me, let me respond on a few levels. First, I love your attitude, which is questioning and being open to whatever God might be saying and, and having us walk in as opposed to just either buying into it without thought or just mocking those that do. So the, the humble attitude is the most important thing. On the larger scale, I have a problem with everything being prophetic. Everything has prophetic meaning and prophetic significance. If that was the case, the whole world would have been saved like 80 times over, you know? If, if all the yeah. breakthroughs that were supposed to happen happened and every year was the year, the year of restoration and the year of liberty and the year of... Jew, it's not to say God's not doing any of that, but if that was all stuff he was really doing, then, then America would be 10 times more godly than it is today and believers would be 100 times more anointed than they are today. So we can, we can get into this hyper-prophetic mentality that becomes really unrealistic. It's, it's almost like a fantasy realm, and it's part of what I deal with in my book, Playing with Holy Fire, a wake-up call to the Pentecostal Charismatic Church. So on the larger level, I'm suspicious of that kind of thing. I don't see it taught in scripture. I don't see it as conducive to discipleship and growth. I see it as playing into sensationalism and sometimes even spiritual fantasy. So that's first thing. Second thing, in a church context, if, you're, if your church is not a Messianic Jewish congregation and more adhering to the Jewish calendar, then uh, it's, it's a little bit inappropriate to be bringing it up all the time. If, if there's a little group of people interested in things, fine. If others are trying to push it, whatever it is that's not part of the larger church culture, I don't care which direction it's going, it's, it's not really appropriate for congregants to be pushing something that's contrary to larger church culture. Let them go elsewhere where folks agree with that. And, and often what happens with Gentile Christians is they'll get this hyper-Jewishness. They'll get into all this Jewish stuff that's not even part of their background and culture, and it tends to be in a hyper way and a superficial way. And as far as the calendar in general, let's remember that the biblical calendar— is different than the modern Jewish calendar or the calendar that's been used for many centuries meaning that the first day of the month in the biblical calendar would be Nisan which is roughly March April whereas the first the first month of the biblical calendar now is 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 Tishrei which is roughly September October and otherwise would be the 7th month uh, in the in the biblical calendar so uh, all all that, to, all that to say that calendar shifts and things like that are just something that happens with culture. Now, if they said, hey, let's look at the biblical holy days. Let's remember the importance of the Passover and Pentecost. Let's remember the importance of, of trumpets and, and Day of Atonement. Let's understand the spiritual significance for today and for the future of Israel. That's great. Good, good, good. But this other stuff to me can be superficial and in many ways out of place. All right. Thank you, sir, for the
1: call. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH.
0: That is... Number to call. Hey, we have a very important e blast being sent out on Monday. If you don't get my emails, would you take a minute now? If you're driving, wait Wait till you have a minute, but go to my website, askdrbrown.org, ASKDRBrown.org, and right on the homepage, just click to get our emails. We'll send you immediately a free mini book, an e book called Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah, which is condensing decades of study and thought into. A few pages that will really be eye-opening for you. So that's just my way of saying thank you for being part of our work. But make sure you go to the website, AskDrBrown.org. Have an important email going out on Monday. I want to make sure that you receive that email. All right, we go back to the phones. You've got questions. We've got answers. Let's go to Elizabeth in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Thanks for calling.
5: Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you?
0: i'm doing great thank you
5: awesome well it's great to be able to listen live i'm always working on fridays and i had a vacation day today so uh,
0: oh I come on I'd
5: call in I that's know. the I way to like, spend a
0: vacation at, i love it
5: right well i i looked at the clock i was like oh my goodness i can actually listen live <laughs> so my uh, question i've been wondering what you might think about this it's a ministry called uh the last reformation and it's torben Thundergaard. have you heard of him
0: yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of him, and I have some friends that know him a little, but go ahead with your question.
5: Okay, yeah, sure. So I guess he's out of Denmark, mm-hmm. and um, I, he's very much uh, focuses on discipleship, and everything about it looks real good. I was listening to some of his teachings, and um, he does these programs called Quick Starts. You know where people come and i can only picture it like i guess they're in a congregational setting and they hear Uh the word people come to the lord that maybe didn't know jesus and then they straight go out into the street right start praying for people um and a friend of mine was like i don't know it sounds a little cultish to me and i'd be careful listening to that stuff and maybe it's not so good that you know you have people going out immediately like that when they just you know, are learning about Jesus. So I just wanted your take on it.
0: Yeah. So uh, I, I often get asked about it, and there's one major video that's been out for some time that that I did not get to watch yet, or simply didn't okay. watch yet. The the website LastReformation.com, dot com. We believe that the church is facing a new reformation a reformation that will go deeper than any reformation before away from wrong church traditions and creating an understanding that church is who we as believers are and that where we go on sunday we believe that with this reformation we'll go back to what we read in the acts a simple disciple life led by the holy spirit with the kingdom of god comes near in homes on the streets and shops just all places where people are so uh, first thing obviously it's fine to gather together on a sunday morning in a building and the disciples met in the temple and they met from house to house so both have value but right. i absolutely agree with him that it's a matter of of being who we are and how we live as opposed to going somewhere so yes we go together we meet i'm scheduled to preach at my home congregation fire this sunday morning we meet in the building as well as in houses but it's a matter of being the church more than going to church that matters yeah. so i i agree with that sentiment there and then they they have three main elements the true gospel kick-starting in a new reformation so the true gospel jesus died on the cross resurrected to be able to set us free from our sins how do we respond to that message we need to repent and be baptized in water and we'll receive the holy spirit so obviously saying that these fundamentals of believing the gospel repenting being water baptized and then receiving the spirit should be fundamentals whereas in some cases you come to faith and it's a year later before you get baptized and there's not even talk of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, I agree, that's that's a New Testament emphasis as well. And then he says, Kickstarting, we need to make we need to make Jesus Lord by obeying his commands. Kick starting is a powerful tool that equips believers to heal the sick, preach the gospel, cast out demons, and be led by the Spirit. So obviously the idea is as soon as you're touched by the Lord, go out with others and begin to share your faith and begin to pray for people. So right. If it's a matter of, you, okay, let's say, Elizabeth, you've been walking with the Lord for five years, and you lead your next-door neighbor to the Lord, and she's miraculously healed and saved, and uh, a few days later, she gets water baptized and filled with the Spirit, and then you say to her, hey, why don't you join me? Let's go out in the street and share the gospel. And and if she's in a setting of being discipled, and if she's in a setting of here's someone to help her, she's praying for the sick, and you know you're doing it together— then that's just a matter of being believers, just like when you're brand new, you share your faith. On the flip side, you don't appoint novices as teachers. You don't give them spiritual authority. Right. There, There's lots of potential pitfalls. So if someone is in a discipling environment and immediately learns, hey, it's Jesus who does this, so we just start praying for people right off the bat and you know, preaching the gospel, that's one thing if you're just being sent out on your own, okay, brand new, now you two go out, right. obviously, we're going to get all kinds of doctrinal error mixed in. There's going to be all kinds of, you know, pride, look at how God's used, look at who I am, and all kinds of things. So it all depends on how they do it, right? And then new reformation, it's time for reformation of the church, a deeper understanding of the church is not the building uh, nor the institute. It's the fellowship of disciples that have made Jesus Lord of all aspects of their life. So these are things that Many have taught and preached for years. A lot of the house church movement has emphasized this. My book, Revolution in the Church, I talked about some of these things. If it's in the context of healthy discipleship and nurturing and hands-on training and growth, I'm all for it. If it's yeah. in the context of rejecting the church establishment and coming out of Babylon and get out of the right. dead churches, and then it's reactionary and I would be against it. So not... Having interacted with the leaders myself, one, one of our, my grads spent some time with him and we were interacting about that, uh, but not having uh, gotten to know him myself or watched the video, I just want to evaluate this with the same tools that I'd give to anyone else and say, sure. this is what you need to look at. So people meeting in houses rather than church buildings, great, fine. People, uh, upon clearly coming to faith, getting baptized with water, wonderful. Saying that we believe that now's the time to receive the Spirit, all for it. Getting people involved in a hands-on way. Hey, uh, you know, I'm going to be knocking on doors, sharing my faith. You want to come with me? Sure, sure. You know, and here and there, let's give your testimony or let's pray for people. Getting people immersed like that, great. But anything that's reactionary, anything that comes away as condemning, of quote the institutional church, then to me... That already has a seed of error that needs to be corrected. So I'm not saying that's the case here, but I'm saying that because what they're putting forth is trying to make a positive statement. Uh, It can be done in a reactionary way or in a way of obedience and love. That would be the other big question to me.
5: Right, okay. Well I did watch a video that he put out with a couple of his uh, disciples, I guess his leadership team, and they did say, you know, we are not against the Church. You know, they were addressing right. some people that had come and said, you know, like leaders, in, big leaders in the Church, saying, you know, you're causing division, you're against the Church. They're like, we don't preach against the Church. The Church is is it's us. We're the body. We love the Church. Right. Um, so it, it doesn't appear as though he is preaching that way. It, yeah, so it those are, those are things just to... Yeah. But,
0: but, but with anything, sometimes the leader says it one way... It trickles down different ways to others so we always have to be careful that's true right to honor the body and again I'm not saying he isn't in any way but we always have to be careful to honor the body we have to be careful to respect if someone's a fellow believer even if I have doctrinal differences I'm still gonna honor that person as someone I'm gonna spend eternity with and for whom Jesus died and and then do we need ongoing reformation yeah and I suspect we will until Jesus returns (laughs) Amen. All right. Have a great rest of your vacation day. Thank you.
5: (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stephen, welcome to the Line of Fire.
6: Hey, Dr. Brown. How's it going?
0: Going very well. Thank you.
6: Uh, So my question is, um, I've been a believer for a long time, since age 10, and in my teen years, I'd struggled with same-sex attraction.
1: Mm-hmm. And
6: I, you know, I dabbled in it, but then i been saved by God's grace, and I repented and been free from that. But it still comes up every now and then. So what are some ways that I can combat it um, biblically? And, you know, what are ways that I can also reassure myself that, God created me to be, uh, to be godly and holy.
0: Sure. Well, well Stephen, first, uh, I appreciate your heart for the Lord, and I'm so glad that you recognize that the things that you were dabbling in were not God's plan for your life, and you didn't believe the, the gay Christian lie or other things like that. And just to ask, do you have my book, Can You Be Gay and Christian?,
6: no I, no, I did not, but I, okay. I just felt that deep revelation from the Holy Spirit that this is not the way
0: to go. Got it. Yeah, well that's because you have relationship with God. So uh, when we're done, we we're just, just stay on the line, we'll get your phone number, excuse me, we'll get your uh, mailing address, and I want to send you a free copy of Can You Be Gay and Christian. And, and we're going to have a break in a moment, so I'm going to come back to you after the, the break. But once you stay right there until we get your name and address, so we can send you this book, Can You Be Gain Christian? But the first, the first thing is this it's because you're a child of God that you've said no to things that are contrary to His best for your life. You've said no to things that are sinful and defiling. It's because He loves you, not just because you, you, you made the decision. Let that encourage you and comfort you. It's because God loves you and is for you and has a plan to bless you, a plan for your life. That's why you knew those things were wrong. In the natural, in the flesh, we're all fallen and we're going to tend to do the wrong thing. But the Holy Spirit living inside of you, because you're a chosen child of God, that's why you recognize that same-sex attractions were contrary to God's order so that should encourage you the holy spirit is at work in you that's why you're on the phone with me now all right stay right there we'll come back on the other side of the break it's
1: the line of fire with your host dr michael brown your voice of moral cultural and spiritual revolution here again is dr michael brown Boy, time flies when you're having a good time, and time
0: especially flies on our Friday broadcast. You've got questions, we've got answers. 866-348-7884 is the number two call. We received a call from a young man named Stephen in Tulsa, Oklahoma, said that he's been following Jesus since he was 10, that he began to experience same-sex attraction as a teenager, that he dabbled with it, but then recognized it was wrong. And has been following the lord sometimes still struggles with those attractions and wants guidelines on how to overcome those and also just needs assurance in his own life that god has created him for a purpose to live a godly life and of course the fact that he said no to those same-sex attractions and yes to the lord is the very proof that god is at work in him that the holy spirit dwells within him and convicted him of sin and pulled him and pushed him and helped him to go on a path of righteousness. So, number one, that's encouragement. God is at work, Stephen, in your life. Number two, the key thing that's very important is that you don't identify in your mind as I'm gay. No, what it is, is you're a follower of Jesus, you're a son of God, a beloved child of God with purpose and calling in your life. And you struggle with same-sex attraction sometimes. Others struggle with pride on a daily basis. Others struggle with anger. Others struggle with heterosexual lust. Others struggle with competitive, jealous spirit and on and on it goes. Uh, Everyone has some area, self-righteousness, hypocrisy. Everyone has some area or areas where we struggle and that's why we go to the cross. We don't identify with those areas of struggle. I don't say I'm a prideful Christian or a jealous Christian or an angry Christian or a lustful Christian or a gay Christian or a self-righteous Christian. No, I'm a follower of Jesus, and these are areas of the flesh that I say no to. So that's a big, big thing. Don't identify with that area of the flesh, identify as a child of God, and then focus on holiness. Not chasing away same-sex attraction, but growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. How do you do that? You, you turn away from the things that cause temptation and that provoke the flesh, flee them, right? Second 2 Timothy 2.22, all twos, flee those things, and then turn towards righteousness, godliness, holiness, together with others of a pure heart. Meditate on Scripture. Meditate on verses about the beauty of the Lord. Focus on His goodness. Meditate on verses calling us to be holy. And get the word in your heart, in your mind, as the psalmist famously famously said in Psalm one nineteen, that he hid God's word in his heart, that he might not sin against Him. And then uh, there are ministries right there in Tulsa. Uh, check out Stephen Black and ministry he's part of there. Go to restored hope network, restored hope network dot org dot com. You'll, you'll check to see. And, and Stephen Black, right there, I believe, in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, living a holy, godly life and helping others with unwanted same-sex attraction. Sometimes you get to the root of some of the issues, and through that, find freedom, healing, and deliverance. And if you ever feel defiled by a thought, just, Lord, wash me, cleanse me. That's not who I am. I'm your child. I love you. I'm seeking to live a holy life. Don't get caught up in the thing and dragged down by it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Gary in Indiana. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Gary. Are you there? Gary's gone. Uh, let's go to Bakersfield, California. Eric, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Michael Brown. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you.
3: Yeah, my question is, uh, I've heard quite a few uh the debates with uh, when it comes to cessation of the gifts, and uh, I've heard several of yours. And My question is, is on uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Mm-hmm. when Jesus instructs his disciples uh, to to instruct the disciples that the disciples are going to make, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Yeah. My question is, why isn't that passage ever, you know, am I missing something? Why isn't that passage ever used in kind of these arguments that, you know, the gifts are still active today, and that here's Jesus saying, hey, everything I've, I've taught you to do, teach it all to those that you make disciples of yourselves.
0: Right so there there's two sides to that coin. The larger argument I have used that Jesus has all authority until the end mm-hmm. of the age and that he sends us out with his authority. And then we we look at that word for authority exousia and we we look at how it's used in the New Testament authority over demons and disease and authority over powers of darkness. And we go in the authority of Jesus. When has that changed? When has that been diminished? Uh, when has that been diluted? It hasn't. So I believe it's a strong argument. All authority until uh, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age. Clear. No question about it. Now, you might say, here's your other argument. Yeah, you know, Jesus sent out this, the, the 12 and he sent out the 70. He sent out the 12 in Luke 9 he sent out the 70 in Luke 10 and told them to to go into houses and villages and preach and heal and drive out demons. Matthew 10, the same commission. Mark 6, the same commission. So that's what he taught then, we do the same thing now. Someone would come back and say, yeah, Matthew 10, he said, don't go into any of the houses of the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Does that still apply? Or Or if he told his disciples to sell certain things, does that apply now? In other words, there were specific instructions that he gave to his disciples at specific times? What we have to do is see what applies for all time. Can we then take the principles of heal the sick, drive out demons? Do those apply for all time? So we see in the book of Acts, as the disciples did not just go to Jews, but to Jews and Gentiles, that they were healing the sick and driving out demons. Okay, so that continues. And then the witness in the longer ending of Mark, it's not the original ending of Mark, but I believe it preserves early words of Jesus, uh, or, or actual words of Jesus, that says these signs will follow those who believe, right? And, and right. so whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. These sons will follow those who believe. That's not just the apostles. That's the, anyone who believes. And they'll drive out demons. They'll pray for the sick, and the sick will be healed. Uh, lay hands on the sick, and the sick will be healed. So I believe you can make a good argument for continuance. You just have to nuance it, lest someone could just come back and say, well, then how come you're not only going to, to Jews? Because that was part of the Matthew 10 command when he sent out the 12. So you have to have a good answer. And one of the answers is that that we are pre- the gospel of grace we preach according to Acts 20 is the gospel of the kingdom. It's not two different gospels. The gospel of grace is the gospel of the kingdom, and the kingdom of God comes with divine power. And where the kingdom of God goes, light shines, darkness is driven out healing comes, sickness is driven out liberty comes, demons are driven out that's part of the kingdom of God advancing and that's what we preach and believe so I'm with you on that Amen. All yeah. right.
3: yeah I, I just never heard that ever used and I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something so that if I, it was ever brought up that I could kind of nuance it like you said and, and that's uh, yeah that's good. that's good I mean the spirit's been poured out so at that point they're basically released and commissioned. You know, they receive yeah, the power the other, to fulfill their commission.
0: Right, exactly. And the other question is: since we receive the same spirit, this, you'll receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you look twenty four forty nine Acts one eight with great power the disciples bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus Acts four thirty three or Acts ten thirty eight that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power dunamis. So that's the same power, same dunamis that God's given to the church through the Spirit. So when did God change the Spirit that we receive? Acts 2.39, the promise to you, your children, all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's the same promise of the Spirit. Hey, thank you, Eric, for your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Darren in London, England. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
7: God bless you, Dr. Brown. Uh, as, as, yeah, as you said, I'm calling to you from London, England. I've been watching you for a while. You truly got a, an international ministry, and I watched you versus, uh, well, the old video versus Tobias Singer, and I was uh, really impressed, but I need your help with something. Yeah, I'm here. Um, Thank you. I want to know how you interpret or what's your opinion on Ezekiel 29, in particular, verses 10 through to 12 in specific. The reason why I ask is uh, many critics and atheists um, have these passages cited on the Internet, as an unfulfilled prophecy as historically Egypt has never been uninhabited um, for 40 years and that's what it says in uh, verse 11 Um, they try to link it to Ezekiel 29 verse 17 where it then starts to talk about Nebuchadnezzar Mm -hmm. and you know I've done some digging myself and I can find that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Egypt in 601 BC and he died in 561 BC but do you see this as a something literal that was hyperbolic in its description, or do you do you interpret it another way?
0: Yeah, I, I love the questions and I love the the options that you're you're thinking through. By the way, I'm scheduled to be in London the first weekend of October. It should be on our itinerary soon if it's, it's not right? already. Yeah, there's an all day Jewish apologetics conference. That's uh that I'll be part of on Saturday and preaching morning and evening at a church there hey, in London. Look. But yeah, the, the the info will be on our website so- soon if okay. it's not already. Yeah, so let hmm. me just read these verses then. Yeah, Ezekiel uh twenty nine, verses ten through twelve. And this is this is a, a common problem whereby there are prophetic verses that speak quite decisively about something that's gonna happen, the fate of a nation and let's right. say the prophets prophesied 10 things that were going to happen dramatically, clearly, powerfully, right? Yeah. And then let's, let's say eight of them happened just as they said, and okay. then two of them didn't happen. So the question is, okay, was there something else that happened here? Was there repentance that took place that, that prevented the judgment from coming? Or is it still hmm. something that's future? Thank because you, if, yeah. if the prophet got it right, You know, like, if if, let's say you're praying for blind people in front of an atheist, right? Yeah. And there are five people born blind, and three of them are instantly healed, and the other two are not Mm -hmm. healed. I would Mm -hmm. say that that that's more of a challenge for the atheist than for you, because impossible things just happen three times that he has no explanation for, and we we don't necessarily have an explanation for why the others weren't healed, but, hey, here's God's power and demonstration. So there were things Jeremiah prophesied, for example— about the destruction of the temple that happened exactly as he said it. And there were things about the exile happening happened exactly as he said it. And then the return that he prophesied only happened in part. What does that tell us? There's more that's yet to happen. The same okay. way, the same way with... And rather than read the whole passage here, just as I'm looking at the clock and have a break coming up, Ezekiel 29, 10 through 12, speaks of a very specific judgment on Egypt Mm. and an uninhabited land, and it does give a period of 40 years, and and there's no evidence that that definitely happened like that. You could argue with with Nebuchadnezzar and his invasion that it did. We just don't have enough data to, to support it. So we have three choices. Ezekiel got it wrong, and the atheists are right. It's one possibility. Second, it's typical prophetic hyperbole, where there's kind of a snapshot of something that they they show you, and that gets projected on the whole, or it's still future. We'll be right back. Stay there.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for
0: joining us on the line of fire. I just want to finish up my conversation with Darren in England. So we know that, for example, Isaiah 19 speaks of the day when God will smite Egypt with deep smiting and then healing. And the Ezekiel 29 passages you read on, it does talk about Egypt being humbled, Egyptians being scattered, and then Egyptians being restored. So I would say that's an example of a prophecy that has not yet come to pass. Yeah, there is prophetic hyperbole. It's not falsehood. It's just painting a certain picture. So taking a snapshot of, say, devastation in one country and says, this is coming to our country. So they they project that devastation over the nation. You know, Jeremiah did it with cities without inhabitant uh, in Judah with the Babylonian exile. Well, not every city was without inhabitant, but some were, and that's what is vividly, boom, presented there by the prophet. That being said, the passage in Ezekiel 29, I would say that's one that hasn't come to pass yet, and that that, uh, Isaiah 19 points to as well towards the end of that chapter. God smiting Egypt. And then healing. And things could happen at the end of this age. Now, 40 could be literally 40 years or could could speak of a, a period of time that's not uncommon in, in Hebrew, the Semitic languages. But uh, I would say it simply has not come to pass yet, but it still will. And it's not a cop-out. Because like I said, if the prophet got part 1, part 2, part 3, part 4, part 5 right, and then part 6 and 7 didn't happen yet, you say, okay, then they will happen. And here's our further proof that the prophet spoke of the Jewish people coming back to the land in a much greater measure than it happened after the Babylonian captivity. Well, we're, we're seeing it unfold in our day. Here's Israel today. That shows you that prophecies can be fulfilled over a period of time. Thank you, Darren. Hope to see you in London in the fall. Eight six six three four truth uh, let's go to Manhattan, Kansas. Eugene, welcome to the Line of Fire.
8: So, Ron, how are you doing? Sir?
0: Doing very well, thank you.
8: Yes, just for the record, you know, I really appreciate uh, the, the debate regarding you know. gifts. I grew up in a Pentecostal church home, and so when I left that home, when I joined the army, exposed to different doctrine, and that John G. MacArthur's strange fire, you know, I, I I saw that on YouTube, and it was really really disturbing growing up in a church home where the gifts were deemed as holy. And he deemed it as of the devil. So confusing, but when I saw your debate, it helped me. You yeah, helped me settle that. It helped me settle my faith. So thank you. For Good.
0: That. So, so glad to just hear just that.
8: The, yes, sir. Just for the second time, my question. Again, growing up in a Pentecostal home, um, they were, they relied around the doctrine of baptism before in Acts two thirty-eight and John three one must be born of water and of the Spirit. Acts 2, thirty-eight we can be baptized. Everyone, is the confessions of your sins and so forth, and so they believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And I'm not asking this out of a sense of a challenge, I'm asking you this because I simply don't understand, and I'm just hoping for a little bit more clarification. Um, Do you believe that baptism is essential for salvation, and if not, what's the explanation for scriptures like Acts 2.38, and passages like in John 3 where Christ talks about one being born of water, and of course Mm -hmm. Acts 2.38, you know, the baptism being necessary for the remissions of your sins? And also, if you have more time, um, what do you think about being baptized specifically in the name of Jesus? I know some say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and others say the name of Jesus. It was just a little confusing. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts behind those those scriptures there?
0: Yeah, great. Uh, Glad glad to help. So, number one, I do not believe that baptism is essential for salvation, meaning, if you have truly put your faith in the Lord Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sins— and we're not yet baptized that you therefore go to hell and are lost. I do not believe that. Baptism is required for full obedience. So this is something God does command. And you say, well, uh, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Yeah, this is, you can go on a tour with us to February, in February to Israel, and you'll see by the, the outskirts of where the, the temple originally stood you'll see these mikvahot, these baptismal pools, where people come down one side and go out the other. They had them all over Jerusalem, because this was part of, of repentance and cleansing. These were religious rites that were done by the people on a regular basis, so this is nothing new. Okay, John the Immerser preached repentance. This was nothing new whatsoever. So, of course, repent and be baptized. This, this was the sign. This was the thing you were required to do, but it's now through faith in the Lord Jesus. So you have baptism is happening as an automatic thing. It's, it's done immediately upon profession of faith, and we need to get back to that. When someone is truly turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, they should be baptized. I don't believe they should wait six months or a year or, or three years, all right? That being said, throughout the, the message of the Gospels and then through the letters as, as Paul explains salvation, it is through faith in the Lord Jesus. So baptism is something that is expected that everyone will be baptized. It is something that we are required to do in obedience to the Lord. It is something of great importance. And it can even be associated with washing away our sins. Acts 22, arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. And then 1 Peter 3, speaking of the, the, the cleansing that it brings, okay? That being said, salvation comes through faith in the finished work of the cross, not through my being baptized in water. That's first thing. <clears throat> second thing is, John 3, you must be born of water and the Spirit. That could mean water baptism. It's possible. It could also mean water being natural birth when you're born the first time, but to order into the kingdom, you need a second birth. That's born of the Spirit. Uh, some speak of the washing of water by the Word. So, you cannot dogmatically say that that means water baptism there. And then as for the formula, Jesus gives us the formula, the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and, and in Acts, you have several different forms of the Greek, uh, in the name of Jesus, upon the name of Jesus, into the name of Jesus. So this is when you're saved, either calling on Jesus for salvation, or baptized Into Jesus' death or baptized into the body of Christ. That's not the formula. Be baptized in Jesus' name does not mean saying those words. It means that you're being baptized into who He is, what He's done, or calling on His name for salvation and for cleansing as you're baptized. So hopefully that helps. Obviously, there's debate on that, but I'm trying to be as concise and clear as I can. And above all, be at peace in your own heart before the Lord. 866. three four truth uh let us go to laura in san francisco welcome to the line of fire
9: hi dr brown a pleasure to talk to you thank you okay i have a question so i am going to be going to israel on february and i have a lot of friends there are jewish people and i've been uh having this question in my heart about um how does the faith in Jesus plays, and I don't know if it's a versus Jewish survival, because it seems like with some of them, they're, the Jewish survival, like the way they behave is like more towards that than even the faith. I don't know how to explain it. And, and I don't want to judge them wrongly. I, I want to mm-hmm. know what the Bible says about it. Um, and uh, I want to understand, like, how do I uh, bless them? And since I'm going to be going to Israel with more, so I want to know how does this play? I don't
0: know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, to the the extent that that I can uh, answer this concisely and and fully understand um, what you're asking, God has called the Jewish people as a witness nation and as a people that will welcome back the Messiah when he returns. Therefore, Jewish survival is very important. And because of that, many Jews recognize the devil's tried to wipe them out over the years, where they've just assimilated into the larger culture on their own. It's part of satanic work as, as well in many ways. Uh, lost heritage, lost sense of destiny purpose. And because of that, it is very important for Jews to maintain their Jewishness and hold on to that. And, it, and I believe it's put in their heart by the Lord, that sense of Jewish identity. Now, our highest calling is to be sons and daughters of God that transcends being Jewish or Gentile, <clears throat> transcends being male or female, and our focus then is on Jesus. But if you recognize for a Jew to focus on Jesus, they're focusing on the Jewish Savior and the one who will bring to culmination God's purposes for the Jewish people. If you recognize that, then as you just pray for them, bless them, and keep following Jesus as a lover of Israel, you'll be helping them fulfill their destiny as well. So I do hope that helps Laura and, and perhaps we can talk further and get more clarification on your question. Hey, let's go to Germany really quickly. Hannah, time is short, but I wanted to get you on before we were done. Welcome to the program. Are you there? Hello? Yes, Hannah. Yes, go go I, ahead. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah.
6: Hi. Um yeah, I wanted to ask um how I'm so impressed how you deal with um, controversial things and how you address them, and I just wanted to ask you, how did you get rid of fear of men?
0: Ah, Okay, well fir- first thing I'm sure I could grow more in terms of that, but when it comes to, to areas of right and wrong, when it comes to areas of, of controversy about moral issues or doctrinal issues, I feel burdened by the Lord. When I feel gripped by the Lord, Hannah, when I feel yeah. called by the Lord, that's all I think about. And in other words, wow. to me, it's that's the only thing I can do. You know, Amos three, the lion yeah. is roared. Who can but fear the Lord God has spoken? Who can but prophesy? So when I was in, in Beit Jala next to Bethlehem in May, bringing one of the most difficult messages I ever brought, a, a loving challenge to my Palestinian Christian friends, and it was, yeah. it was gonna be a very difficult message, I thought, you know, I'm not even thinking about it. I I was difficult because I cared about the people and I didn't want to hurt the people. But Mm. I I wasn't thinking if I do this, i get killed. If I do this, this could happen. I don't mean by them, but Palestinian Authority or I could have some other issues. It it didn't occur to me because I had a message from God. So to me, being gripped by God, I know that I know he's called me to do something. I'm convicted by his word. That's all I can do. And consequences, getting attacked or killed or maligned, they don't exist. All that exists in my heart and mind is... Lord, you give me this assignment. I want to be obedient and do it in a way that glorifies you. Hey, bless you, Hannah. In Germany, back with you folks on Monday.